Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 25th through Saturday, the 27th, feature Ricardo Muti joined by the orchestra's principal timpanist, David Herbert. The program includes a Mozart divertimento in F major, William Kraft's Timpani Concerto No. 1, and two works by Respighi, Ancient Airs and Dances Suite No. 1, and The Pines of Rome. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on William Kraft's Timpani Concerto No. 1, a work lasting about 23 minutes. The days of percussionists being second-class citizens in the musical society are clearly over. William Kraft wrote that in 1968. The last of orchestral families to be exploited, they have come of age in the 20th century. Kraft was the man to make that case. A member of the Los Angeles Philharmonic for 26 years, 18 of them as principal timpanist, Kraft was one of the day's leading experts on the instruments of his section, as well as a composer of serious and accomplished music, much of it revealing the unleashed potential of the percussion family. He was also the orchestra's assistant conductor from 1968 until 72 and its composer-in-residence in the early 1980s. Kraft was born in Chicago to Jewish immigrants from Ukraine and raised in San Diego from the age of three. He was not interested in music at first, but had his first great epiphany after his sister introduced him to the music of Benny Goodman. When he heard Count Basie's drummer Joe Jones, he asked his father for a drum set. Many years later, after taking private percussion lessons in New York City and studying composition at Columbia University, he also played in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, he moved back to California where he joined the Los Angeles Philharmonic's percussion section in 1955. In Los Angeles, he led a multifaceted life in music, organizing contemporary music concerts, founding the Los Angeles Percussion Ensemble, playing in the U.S. premiere of Stockhausen's Ziklus and Boulez's Le Moteau Saint-Maître, and working in the movie industry as a composer and performer. He played the dramatic percussion parts in Bernard Herrmann's score for North by Northwest, the Hitchcock classic from 1959. In Los Angeles, Kraft also worked with many of the century's great composers, including Edgar Varese and Igor Stravinsky. Early on, he became Stravinsky's percussion player and timpanist of choice for the recordings of his music made under the composer's supervision. He assisted in editing the percussion parts for The Soldier's Tale and later reworked the timpani parts in The Rite of Spring for one player rather than two, to facilitate the L.A. Orchestra's tour performances. When Stravinsky died in 1971, Kraft composed In Memoriam, Igor Stravinsky, three movements for violin and piano. Kraft once said that it was a performance of Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring he heard as a teenager that changed his life. In his own music, Kraft was bold and uncompromising. He did not shy away from thorny musical language or difficult subjects. In 1980, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra played Kraft's Contextures, Riots, Decade 60, a powerful response to the racial and anti-Vietnam violence of the 1960s. The score was written for Zubin Mehta and the Los Angeles Philharmonic, who were rehearsing the work when they got word of Martin Luther King's assassination. 
The music he composed for the original version of the multicolored neon-lit passageway between the B and C concourses at Chicago O'Hare International Airport Terminal 1 in 1987 was quickly deemed too controversial and quietly replaced by the arrangement of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, one still hears today. Kraft wrote music throughout his career. He was working on a new piece, Kaleidoscope, at the time of his death last year at the age of 98. It was his language, his widow, Joan Huang, said of composing. Twice, Kraft won the prestigious Kennedy Center Friedheim Award, the second time for the timpani concerto number no. one that is performed at these concerts. Today, this score is considered a landmark in establishing the timpani as a first-rate citizen of musical society. The concerto also features a large and imaginatively employed group of percussion instruments in addition to the solo timpani at center stage. In 2005, Kraft wrote a second timpani concerto, which was premiered that year nearly two decades after the first by David Herbert and the San Francisco Symphony, which commissioned the work conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. Commissioned to write his first timpani concerto in 1983, Kraft at first doubted that the timpani could sustain sufficient musical interest for a full-blown concerto, and he suggested a five-movement suite containing movements of contrasting character. However, as he later wrote, when I began actual composition, I realized I had found the concept, the material, and the structure that would make a large three-movement concerto. Before he began composing, he met with Thomas Atkins, who had commissioned the score and who would play the premiere. One fruitful idea that came from that discussion was the use of gloves with differing materials clothing the fingers. At the premiere in Indianapolis, the concert was to be preceded by two delicate works by Frederick Delius, and Kraft wanted the concerto to grow out of that serenity. Therefore, we looked for the softest method of playing. From sticks we went to hands, and from hands to fingers, and from fingers to gloves with different coverings. The opening movement starts with felt-covered fingers, moves on to leather, the whole hand, sticks of increasingly hard coverings, and finally uncovered wood. Likewise, the musical material grows, Kraft said, beginning with a timpani cadenza that itself unfolds from a solitary note. Other instruments are gradually added in an interplay with the soloist until the entire orchestra is involved. Kraft completed the first movement on his birthday, September 6, 1983, at the McDowell Colony, where most of the concerto was written. The second movement is dedicated to Kraft's mother, who died September 12th during its composition. It is entitled Poem for Timpani, Two-String Orchestras, Celesta, and Percussion. The movement is based on glissandos, which Kraft calls one of the idiomatic techniques of the timpani. The third movement is built on a four-movement motif, the complete theme being first written for the timpani to establish its idiomatic character and then set in various ways for the orchestra. However, in its final realization, it is first expressed by the orchestra, particularly in the brass. Without a prior intention, the movement emerged into rondo form, climaxing in a brief timpani cadenza just before the very end. Words by William Kraft and program notes by Philip Husher on Kraft's Timpani Concerto No. 1. 
And now on to music by Ottorino Respighi, the ancient airs and dances suite number one lasting about 16 minutes and the Pines of Rome running about 26 minutes. Ottorino Respighi came to this country for the first time in December 1925. He was already well-known among music lovers for Fountains of Rome, a brilliant tone poem composed in 1916, three years after he settled in Rome. His Fountains of Rome has been played by practically every orchestra in the United States and Europe, the New York Times said before he arrived, a remarkable feat for a piece of music not yet 10 years old. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra performed it for the first time in December 1919. Respighi and his wife Elsa, a mezzo-soprano, began their American sojourn in New York City, where he played his new piano concerto, the Concerto in Mixolydian Mode, with the Philharmonic under the baton of Wilhelm Mechelberg. After New York, Respighi traveled to Chicago to appear with the Chicago Symphony, which had already welcomed a number of composers as guest conductors, including Antonin Dvorak and Richard Strauss. Like Rachmaninoff and Prokofiev, who had also visited the orchestra, Respighi was a first-rate pianist. He was the rare artist who held the stage in three different capacities as composer, conductor, and pianist. In Chicago in January 1926, he played his new concerto and led the symphonic poem Pines of Rome, a sequel to The Fountains of Rome, the Chicago Post said that introducing himself in all three roles was a dangerous test for any man to subject himself to, but he is one of those who, with proper humility, has estimated his powers accurately. Chicago audiences embraced his appearance. The powerful, classic cut of his profile was, as one critic noted, familiar to most Americans only from statues of long-departed Roman nobles. His stage presence, there radiates from him a quality of straightforwardness, of vigor of mind and honesty of purpose that makes him what the Italians call simpatico, and his considerable pianistic skills, his intoxicating music, and his ability to coax powerful performances from the orchestra. Back in Europe at the end of 1926, he told a Berlin reporter that he found U.S. orchestras unbelievably excellent. I often noticed while conducting in America that when I struck a particularly difficult passage, the men plunged into it with an almost fanatic zeal, as though to show me that they were equal to any demand made upon their virtuosity. Respighi had caused a stir in New York City when he spoke bluntly with a Musical America reporter. Atonality? Thank heaven that's done for. The future course of music? Who can say? I believe that every composer should first of all be individual. Respighi went on to clarify that for him dissonance like polytonality had its place as a means of expression it has important uses. For many in the Chicago audience who had already heard some of Schoenberg's thorniest music, including the U.S. premiere of his Five Pieces for Orchestra in 1913, Respighi's works came as a welcome sign of modernism in moderation. As the Chicago Post critic wrote, he has mixed intimately with the advanced thinking of our day, and the resources of the modern orchestra are at his fingertips, but he has kept his head. No pioneering excursions into the trackless wilderness for him. The Italian blood runs too strongly in his veins, with the instinctive feeling for melody and the clarity of thought. 
Throughout his career, Respighi was an artist who found himself in love with two seemingly contradictory musical styles. In addition to writing the pieces that put him at the forefront of current orchestral composition, he nursed a nearly lifelong interest in earlier music. Sometimes his backward glances fed directly into the work in front of him, reconciling his passions in a single composition. The concerto in the Mixolydian mode, which he played in Chicago in 1926, is a perfect example of how the two worlds met in Respighi's hands, a virtuoso piano concerto that uses Gregorian chant for thematic material. Over the years, Respighi wrote many works that reflected his fascination with the past. Concerto Al-Antica, a pastiche of 18th-century music, the orchestral suite Rossiniana, and the ballet La Boutique Fantasque, both based on piano pieces by Rossini, and Liocelli, The Birds, which marries transcriptions of birdsong with music of the 17th and 18th centuries. Respighi was a pioneer in pulling older music off the shelf and putting it on the stage, even though he was simply an enthusiast and amateur scholar. We forget today how much of this music was never performed just a few decades ago. 16th century lute music was all but unknown early in the 20th century when Respighi first transformed four pieces for solo lute into lovely works for small orchestra, calling them Antiche Danse et Aria, ancient airs and dances as they have come to be known in English, using the adjective antiche, antique, or ancient, for a repertoire we now simply call early music. The first suite to bear that title, composed in 1917, written between the scores celebrating the fountains and pines of Rome, was soon followed with the two additional suites of transformed lute music. They are among Respighi's most charming and delightful works, even if the source material is in fact not by Respighi. The first suite, which is performed at these concerts, begins with a dance by Simone Molinaro, the late Renaissance figure who was once one of the great lutenists of his day. It is followed by a Gagliarda, a lively dance characterized by leaping and hopping, composed by Vincenzo Galilei father of the celebrated astronomer, who was one of the members of the Florentine Camarata, a group that brought opera into the world. The third movement is an anonymous villanella, a gentle song of Neapolitan origin, here lightly scored for flute, oboe, harp, and strings. Respighi ends with another anonymous piece, a brilliant Italian folk dance that delivers us into the wondrous and magical world of the masked ball. Several days before Respighi made his Chicago debut, The Pines of Rome had received its American premiere in a spectacular performance at Carnegie Hall under Arturo Toscanini. The composer's wife, Elsa, always remembered the delirious applause that greeted the work. The effect of the symphonic poem with its technicolor orchestration, lush pictorial effects, and clever novelties was overwhelming. The daring of Respighi's language is largely lost on audiences today. Some of his most radical sound effects, such as the phonograph recording of a nightingale song in the Pines of Rome, which were once hotly debated, can now seem passé a century later. 
The imagination of his orchestral writing rivaled only by Ravel, among early 20th century composers, Respighi studied with Rimsky-Korsakov, the master of orchestration in St. Petersburg, is easily overlooked in the electronic age. His brilliant color palette and the powerful sweep of his writing long ago became the lingua franca of film scores. Even though Respighi's work is no longer the rage in the concert hall, his is still the style of choice for epic adventure movies. John Williams, arguably today's most celebrated film composer, claims Respighi as one of his primary inspirations. Respighi's most widely performed works exemplify a lavish musical style that today's culture tends to overlook, but his biggest hits, and they were genuine popular successes, the best sellers of their time, are enduring landmarks, classics of their kind. The composer himself conducted the Pines of Rome in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Cleveland, and Baltimore before coming to Chicago and then in Cincinnati on his way home to Rome. Pines of Rome quickly became his signature piece and that rarest of works, a sequel that outdoes the original in brilliance and popularity. Unlike Ravel, who was embarrassed by the hit status of his bolero, Respighi quite enjoyed the success of his most famous creation. He even named his country villa The Pines. The composer's own guide to the score follows. The Pines of the Villa Borghese. Children are at play in the pine groves of Villa Borghese. They dance around in circles. They play at soldiers, marching and fighting. They are wrought up by their own cries like swallows at evening. They rush about. Suddenly, the scene changes. Pines near a catacomb. We see the shades of pine trees fringing the entrance to a catacomb. From the depth rises the sound of mournful psalms, floating through the air like a solemn hymn and gradually and mysteriously dispersing. The pines of the Yaniculum, a shudder runs through the air. The pine trees of the Yaniculum stand distinctly outlined in the clear light of a full moon. A nightingale sings. And the pines of the Appian Way, misty dawn on the Appian Way, Solitary pine trees guarding the magic landscape, the muffled, ceaseless rhythm of unending footsteps. The poet has a fantastic vision of bygone glories, trumpet sound, and in the brilliance of the newly risen sun, a counselor army bursts forth toward the sacred way, mounting in triumph to the capital. Words by the composer himself and program notes by Philip Husher on both Respighi's Pines of Rome and before that, Ancient Airs and Dances for the Lute, Suite Number 1. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.